Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Mile End service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. So, you may be aware that we've started a new sermon series called An Undivided Life, where we're learning more about what it means to live under the Lordship of Jesus, for him to be our Lord as well as our Saviour. And when we invite Jesus into our lives, when we accept that we need him to save us from our sin and brokenness, we also have to accept his rule and authority over our lives as well. We have to concede that God's wisdom, his righteousness and his holiness far exceed our own. And so he is best placed to govern our lives moving forward. In addition to this, God is interested in every aspect of our lives too. We're not just called to give him a piece of us, but we're called to surrender everything to him. Our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our relationships, etc. To do so is to be undivided in our allegiance to him. So with that said... Tonight, we're looking at how to be undivided in our worship. Wow, a worship pastor is talking about worship. I thought she was going to talk about Sabbath. No, I'm talking about worship tonight. Um, Now, if you grew up in a Christian home, especially a rather charismatic one, um, you might be familiar with these. If you look on the next slide, who remembers these? Songs for worship. Yeah, flash in the pan that was. Um, they had a marketing strategy that was ahead of their time because they were advertised on every Christian TV channel going. Plus, they came in different colors. So naturally, that meant you had to buy all the CDs because seriously, if you only have yellow or blue, do you even go to church? No, you have to have the whole collection. Um, Each CD was jam-packed with all the classics. You know, back in the day when worship music was simply a verse and a chorus and maybe occasionally a bridge, but really just a verse and a chorus. Um, And this is in stark contrast to our current worship music that often consists of verse one, verse two, pre-chorus, chorus, bridge one, bridge two, tag, vamp. What's the difference between a tag and a vamp? Let me know afterwards. <laughs> but all jokes aside, worship isn't just about singing songs on a Sunday, is it? It's, it can take on many forms. So what does it mean to actually worship? Well, the Oxford Dictionary defines worship as to show reverence or admiration for, in brackets, a deity. And I really appreciate the use of brackets here because it highlights the fact that worship isn't just restricted to Christianity or even a religion. We're all capable of worshipping anything, and we'll come back to that later. But for now, let's just focus on biblical worship. In the Gospel of John, we find the story of Jesus conversing with a Samaritan woman at a well. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Um, And many of you will be aware that Jews and Samaritans did not mix with each other. They were sworn enemies due to political and religious tensions that went way back to their mutual ancestors. And the Samaritan woman, she demonstrates this when she points out the difference between how Samaritans and Jews worship. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. See, the Jews believed that the temple of Jerusalem was the proper place of worship, whereas the Samaritans, they worshipped on Mount Gerizim, which is referred to as a place of blessing in the book of Deuteronomy. However, Jesus takes both of these ideas and he blows them out of the water when he says this. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So Jesus declares here that true worship will not depend on location, ethnicity, or religious birthright, but on worshiping in the spirit and in truth. Theologian and pastor John Piper puts it like this. Proper worship depends on, one, the right mental grasp of the way God really is, and two, a right spiritual or emotional or affectional heart. So true worship is based on a right understanding of God's nature, and it is a right valuing of God's worth. Okay, so let's break that down. Firstly, we need to understand who it is that we worship. Now, in the Jewish faith, there is an ancient prayer called the Shema, and it has been recited by Jews daily every morning and night for thousands of years. And it's one of the most important prayers to recite. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the prayer is called the Shema because it's named after the first word in the prayer itself, Shema, which means here. And the Bible Project, which is a great resource, by the way, check it out, um, it explains that the word Shema doesn't just mean listening to something, but to carry out or obey what is being listened to. So this gives this biblical command to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word a lot more context. The Jews are to hear and obey that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a statement about who God is, namely that there is a God, there's a creator of the universe, a divine being over us all. He is our God. We're made in his image and likeness and we are accountable to him. And there is one God. There are no other gods equal to or greater than the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. This is the truth of God that we are called to worship. Furthermore, the Shema commands Israel to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So worshiping this God requires all of ourselves. I was chatting with someone at a party recently about tattoos. Now, I have a tattoo of a pineapple above my shoulder blades, which holds no religious significance, much to my father's dismay. Sorry, Dad. Um, But this person, they had a Hebrew inscription on their arm, El Kana, which means jealous God. 
Now, to be honest, any Christian that has a Hebrew tattoo, I'm like, you're about that life. But if you've got a Hebrew tattoo, that means jealous God. Like, you're about that life, okay? Um, And we find this reference in Exodus 34, 14, which says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, when we think of jealousy, it's not usually in a positive way, is it? Because we're likely to think of someone who is insecure and or dissatisfied with something in their life. And then they come across someone else who has that one thing that they want, that think that they think will make their lives better. And so they end up longing for that thing and normally with frustration and bitterness and resentment. So it's safe to say that Jealous is unlikely to be in the top 10 Christian baby names this year. I don't think it's going to make the cut. Um, As such, when we think of God as Jealous, it probably does cause some dissonance in our minds. I mean, is God some sort of jealous partner type who sees us having a good time on earth without him and demands that we pay him more attention? Of course not. (laughs) God doesn't need us to make him feel like he is the center of the universe because he is the center of the universe. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect in righteousness, wisdom, and truth. Even if you don't believe in God, if in theory this God existed, he would naturally be the obvious person worthy of being worshipped by us. But it doesn't stop there because this perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing God demonstrates his worthiness even more with his endless pursuit of love for us. And one way the Bible frames this is by using the imagery of a bride and groom. God is the bridegroom who desires our affection and he pursues us with his unconditional love. He withholds nothing from us, including his only son, Jesus, in order that we, the church, the bride, might be reunited in relationship with him. I recently watched a film called Redeeming Love that's based on a book by Christian author Francine Rivers. Some of you might have heard of it before. And the story is loosely based on the Old Testament book of Hosea. Um, Hosea was a prophet that was called by God to go and marry a prostitute and was told by God that this prostitute would constantly leave him to go back to prostitution. She would have children by other men, but he was supposed to take her back every time to represent the relationship between God and his people Israel, that even though they would constantly abandon him to serve other gods, that he would be faithful to them. So in this film, Michael Hosea, um, a humble farmer, he pursues Angel, a town prostitute who Michael believes God has called him to marry. Now, I won't lie, the movie tried to be a little bit more Bridgerton than Bible. I mean, Francine should have spoken to someone about that. Um, But the core storyline remains intact. Throughout the film, Angel attempts to run away from Michael and their married life over and over again, even though he is consistently kind, gentle, and patient with her. She's desperate to return to her old life, first out of pride, 
but then eventually out of shame and fear that she doesn't deserve anything better. And as a viewer, you feel that angst and frustration, like, why is she doing this? Why does she keep running back to her former misery when she has a man who loves her with such devotion? And we feel this way because deep down, we know that no one could be worthy of angels' affections and faithfulness other than her loving husband. Therefore, when God calls himself jealous, it's not from a place of insecurity or undeserving attention. It's because his unconditional love and grace towards us makes him the only person worthy of our affection and loyalty. God faithfully pursues us and he requires that we do not give ourselves to anyone else as a result. That, my friends, is the nature of the God that we worship. He is loving, yes, he is faithful and he is patient, but he's also perfect, righteous, holy, and jealous over our hearts and desires. He requires us to wholeheartedly devote ourselves to him. And if the God you have in mind is a different version to this one, if it's a God that's indifferent to how you choose to live your life, a God that embraces all of your desires, even if they contradict his word, a God that cares more about you being comfortable than you being holy, then it's possible that you're not worshiping God in truth, i.e. you're not worshiping the God that's spoken of in this book. But that's just one half of the story. Because knowing who God really is and what he asks of us is not enough for our undivided worship unless we value his worth in the right place in our hearts. So our head knowledge must become our heart knowledge. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts, they hold the things that we treasure the most which makes worship the outward expression of our inward treasure. If we value God above all else, our worship will ultimately be a true outward expression of how we treasure him in our hearts. However, if there are other things that take God's rightful place in our hearts, then that worship becomes idolatry. And it's important to understand that there is no one who is neutral when it comes to worship. As I said in the beginning, everyone is capable of worship. Everyone is capable of admiring or adoring or devoting themselves to something. Now, if you've been at Christchurch London for a minute or you're a really good friend of Joel Wade, you've probably heard this quote by David Foster Wallace more than once. <laughs> it says, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. So if you're not worshipping God, you're not simply in limbo. There will be something else that you're devoting yourself to. And we call that thing an idol. 
Now, the word idolatry might sound rather draconian to you. Like, I think most of us don't have little wooden figures that we carry around in our pockets and take out from time to time to pray to. None of us have a golden calf chilling next to our favorite reading chair at home. And the millennial in me wishes that there was some sort of BuzzFeed quiz that I could take that says, are you worshiping an idol? Take this quiz and find out. American pastor Steve Fuller provides some guidance with his blog article, 10 Clues That Something Has Become an Idol. And I'm going to read them out one by one. And I just want us to reflect on them. It causes me to disobey God. It gives me greater joy than Christ. It gives me the most excitement about the future. It is what I daydream about the most. It is what I most enjoy talking about. It is what I fear losing the most. It is what I most enjoy reading about. It is what I most enjoy spending money on. It is what I look to for heart rejuvenation. You know, those times where you feel down and out and you need something to lift you up. It is what I most enjoy spending time on. What I really find helpful about this list is that it can identify that even the most trivial things can become idols in our lives. For example, I am an avid fan of cross-stitch. Haters will say it's a granny hobby and they should be quiet, okay? Um, when I'm in a good place with it, it's actually a great activity that helps me to relax and de-stress after a busy day. And it's also great for making handmade gifts, as you can see here. Um, however, sometimes I can find myself thinking about cross-stitch a lot. I can be with friends and pretend I'm listening to them when in my head I'm thinking, I can't wait to go home and work on my cross-stitch. <laughs> I scour YouTube and Etsy for cross-stitch patterns and the cashier at Hobbycraft starts saying things like, back again this week, last time you were here with your mum, but you're here alone, that's nice. Um, and when I'm stressed or feeling low, I find myself reaching out for my latest cross-stitch more than for my Bible or even in prayer. It becomes my release, my escapism. And without realizing it, I'm receiving greater joy from sowing than I am from Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking, nah, chill out, okay? God's got way more things on his mind with other people than your little sewing habit. Um, but isn't that where it starts because it's often the things that we downplay in our lives as being minor that Satan can use to plant those seeds of idolatry in our hearts. And the more we water those seeds, the more they grow into bigger things that are threatened to push God out of our hearts altogether. And what's even more devastating is that idol worship only leads to our destruction. 
Like David Foster Wallace said, anything we worship that isn't God will ultimately eat us alive. I like to think of the analogy of someone who's stranded on a remote island and they're desperate for water. And they decide to drink from the sea because after all, it's all around them. There's plenty of it, right? But in doing so, they're missing two important truths. Firstly, the more they drink the salty seawater, the more thirsty they will become. And secondly, that the seawater will eventually kill them. The more we worship idols, the more we will be reliant on them until they will eventually consume us. For example, if you worship beauty and body image, you will constantly crave validation, even from social media or from your peers, until you're consumed by self-loathing and hatred. If you worship money, you will constantly strive to be more wealthy and more comfortable until you're consumed by greed and crippling financial anxiety. There will never be enough. And if you worship a relationship or the desire for one, and I have been there many a time, you will constantly seek affirmation from your partner slash spouse or future partner slash spouse, looking for them to complete you or to be your savior until you're consumed by the painful disappointment when they inevitably reveal themselves to be nothing more than a flawed human being just like you. So what is the alternative? Well, it's what Jesus promises the same Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Whereas worshipping idols destroys us, worshipping Jesus refreshes us. We're not left dissatisfied and broken, but fulfilled and wanting more in a good way. Placing God in his rightful place of worship in our hearts is the only way we can find true contentment in this life and the life to come. If the band could come back up. I want to close with a proposition that was made by Joshua in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. To set the scene, they have entered the land of Canaan, the land that God has promised to them. They have defeated their enemies with God's help. And Joshua says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. God presents us with a choice. He doesn't force us to worship him. 
In fact, Romans 1 tells us that when mankind chose to exchange God's glory for man-made idols, he gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts that such idolatry leads to. However, having considered the consequence of that choice, isn't it worth giving God our undivided worship? A worship that accepts his nature and places him above all other things. Does anyone remember the cartoon Hey Arnold on Nickelodeon? Anyone remember that? Or am I showing my age a bit too much? Basically, it's a cartoon about a boy. He's called Arnold at the end. Um, but there was a character in there called Helga. Anyone remember her? And Helga, she was incessantly bullying Arnold at school. She would call him football head. I mean, he does kind of have a football-shaped head, but she would call him football head and make his life a living hell. And yet, what happened when she got home? She ran to her bubblegum shrine of Arnold and worshipped him. She secretly loved him all along. And if we're being honest, we're all guilty of that too, not of making bubblegum shrines, but we can come to church and we can sing all the songs and we can do all the things we're meant to do. We can declare that there's no other God in our lives but Jesus. But when we go home, we go back to our secret shrines, whatever they might be. So as we respond in worship, I want us to use it as an opportunity to rededicate ourselves to God, to lay down our idols and our secret shrines, and to say, as for me and my house, we will desire to serve the Lord. God gives us a choice. He doesn't force us to worship him. But what he doesn't do either is tell us we can do both. We can't be worshipping God over here and then worshipping everything else over there. We have to make a decision to give ourselves to him completely. And I'll be honest with you, there'll be some people, they just won't get it. You'll be laying yourself down and they won't understand. Like we see that when the woman with the alabaster box, she pours the perfume on Jesus' feet. And what do the disciples say? Why did she go and buy such expensive perfume to do that? Why didn't she sell it and give the money to the poor? You know, why do you give some of your monthly income to the church? Why don't you take that money and do something useful with it instead? Why do you come to church on a Sunday or community group on a, a weekday? Why don't you go visit your friends and family that need you and want to see you? What's the point of that? Or why do you practice abstinence in your relationship? You know, what's the point of withholding that from the person you love? I, I don't get it. I don't understand. There will be people like that. But God will never despise a broken and contrite heart that says, Lord, I'm doing it for you. I'm making that decision for you. And I guarantee you there won't be anyone here who makes those choices in worship that will turn around at the end of it all and say, wow, that was such a mistake. Why did I bother doing that? Because God is worth it. What he gives to us through his son Jesus is so much more than we can get anywhere else on earth. Now, I've got a confession. 
I've got knee pads on today. <laughs> um, and the reason why is because I'm 32 and my knees are really bad. Pray for me, it's a really sad story. Um, but the reason I have knee pads on is because today I really felt convicted as we respond in worship that I wanted to kneel. Because it's not that you have to worship a certain way for God to see it, but sometimes when you get to these sort of crossroads, you have to do something physically to show God I'm surrendering. And, and some of us did that this morning. I mean, I couldn't see everyone behind me, but from my left and right, I saw people kneeling in worship. And maybe it's not, you don't want to kneel tonight. It might just be to sit down. It might just be to go in a corner to reflect. But why not use this opportunity tonight to say, Lord, actually, I want to rededicate myself to you. I want to offer myself as an act of worship. I want you to have all of me. And I'm willing to humble myself from my position and to be brought low, knowing that you are worthy of that. So I'm going to be at the front. I'm going to kneel there. And if people want to join, that's fine. Whatever you want to do is an act of surrender. I'm just inviting us to do that tonight, if that's okay. Let's stand and I'll pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God that is worthy of our worship. We thank you that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving. That you pour on us your love and your mercy so extravagantly. That you are jealous for our affections, for our desires. Because you know that you are the only person who can ultimately satisfy them. And so, Lord, as we sing in worship this evening, as we lay down our idols, will you meet us with your grace? Because we know that we continuously mess up again and again, and yet you are so gracious to forgive us. You are so patient with us. You do not turn us away. You do not banish us into the darkness. But as we draw near to you, you draw near to us too. So will you meet us this evening as we make that decision to serve you, Lord God, to love you with all of our hearts and our souls and our strength. Be with us now, we pray. 